Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. Hello. It's the week beginning August the 14th. I'm James Harding. I'm joined by Basha Cummings, Giles Wattell, and Will Brown. Hello. 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 This isn't exactly news, but I do think it gets to the heart of things. I was reading a piece by Timothy Snyder, the Yale historian, over the weekend, who quotes Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And it says this, it forbids anyone from holding office again who has, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States, it puts it in other words, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And he, Snyder, then points to a paper that was published earlier this month by two legal academics, William Board and Michael Stokes Paulson, who in turn point out that A, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, i.e., It's an immediate disqualification. So unlike impeachment, it doesn't need action from Congress. And B, these two legal scholars say, quote, it disqualifies former President Donald Trump and potentially many others because of their participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election. And it just struck me that as more and more people are wondering aloud in Germany whether their constitution provides grounds to disqualify the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland Party, that itself is using these tropes of the right. It just feels as though we're limbering up this summer for an autumn that tests whether democracy is and can be based in law. So that's all to say, it may be August, but it certainly doesn't feel like silly season at all. Welcome to the news meeting. It's the worst US disaster of its kind in more than a century. Five days after deadly wildfires hit, the US state of Hawaii search and recovery teams are still sifting through the remains. The government has confirmed that all 39 asylum seekers housed on the Bibby Stockholm barge moored off the south coast of England have been taken off the vessel. That's because traces of Legionella bacteria were found in its water supply. We begin in Niger, where reports are emerging that the military regime will prosecute the ousted president, Mohamed Barzoum for high treason. If you've been waiting for that much-publicized MMA-style billionaire fight between Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter's Elon Musk, you're going to have to keep waiting. Tonight, Zuckerberg says it's likely not happening. Right, Basher, Giles, Will. Let's get into it. You're each going to pitch a story. Basher, you go first. Uh, Long story short, in a sentence, what are you going for this week? My story is savage mountaineering. Giles? Nice work if you can get it, Charlie boy. Work in inverted commas. (laughs) (laughs) I note the tone of respect there. Uh, Will? Uh, A giant stumbles. 
I suspect, Giles, that your story, your Charlie boy, is the individual that Private Eye has taken to calling Brian. I think the Queen was known as Brenda, and they've <laughs> picked on Brian <laughs> as the name for King Charles. So why don't we start with that, Charles? Uh, nice work if you can get it. Yes. Uh, as preamble, uh, I have floated, but not uh, yet obtained approval for an idea that at Tortoise we refer to him as Charles Windsor, comma, who identifies as King, comma. But that might be a little bit um, of a betrayal of uh, prejudice, which I would not want to get into. Um, in January this year, King Charles asked that his advisers let the government know that he wanted to forego any windfall profits uh, that accrue to him as monarch via the Crown Estate as a result of wind power leases uh, on the Crown Estate, which includes 12 miles of territorial waters and the seabed underneath it. This was, on the face of it, a smart move, a judicious move, a fair move. Um, the arrangement by which a share of Crown Estate profits goes to the king is already uh, providing him with 80, £86 million a year. And when the government followed up on this request, lowering the share of Crown Estate revenue that goes to the king from 25 to 12% last month, the upshot was in principle and in practice that the king's income would stay flat for the year 22 to 23 at 86 million and 23 to 24 at 86 million. However, the Treasury projections for income to the Crown Estate, even when the King is only getting 12%, as a result of very excited bidding for wind power leases on this seabed, means that in the two succeeding years, that is 25, 26 and 26, 27, the King will get 124 million and 126 million respectively, which amounts to a 45% pay rise. Um, I pitch this story for three reasons. I don't think he's done anything to deserve a 45% pay rise. I think the arrangement by which revenues earned on the seabed, as it were, accrue to the king needs re-examining. I think it's bonkers on its face. And I think the story falls under the heading of impunity, uh, which we at Tortoise are uh, keen on investigating in, in many forms. It feels to me like a bait and switch over the course of the past uh, eight months. Uh, virtue signalling in January, followed by profit gouging in, in July and going forwards. You mentioned at the top that we're going to be asking ourselves over the course of this autumn can democracy be based in law? Uh, I think this almost uh, feels relevant under that question. Is the king answerable to the law in the same way as everybody else, or are special arrangements going to go on being made for him? Charles, can I just understand a few things? One is the 12 miles you refer to, i.e. 12 miles off the shore of the United Kingdom, that stretch of land or that stretch of seabed, in effect, belongs to the king? Is that what you're saying? Uh, but no, no. Uh, it it is managed by the Crown Estate. The Crown Estate gets um, 
option revenues and rents. So for any exploitation of any resources that happens uh, on that seabed, and that includes uh, offshore drilling, but there's much more uh, uh, scope for revenue from uh, offshore wind power leases. And the leases alone will yield more than a billion pounds in the 25, 26, 26, 27 years. So I remember that we stumbled on this issue a couple of years ago, perhaps even more now, when Alexi Mostras did that work with David McClure on the royal finances, and the realisation that the settlement that had been done enabled them to exploit offshore for serious financial gain. So in that sense, this isn't new. What you're saying is new is that the king signalled at the beginning of the year that he was going to return that revenue to the state, to the government, but actually the short-term returns still go to the Crown Estate. Is that is that the point? It looks good, but the finances still work for King Charles. Medium and longer term, the finances work gangbusters for the monarchy. Short term, there is a plateau of revenue occurring to him uh, as a result of the lowering of the share of Crown Estate profits that go to the king. Basha, what do you think? I remember when we were doing that reporting a couple of years ago, that the thing that we were all talking about was that, obviously this is before Charles became king, was that he wanted a slimmed down, modernised monarchy. And that that was the whole context in which we were understanding how the Prince Andrew uh, scandal was being dealt with, about this sort of reorientation of minor royals and major royals and working royals. It's how we thought about the um, Prince Harry relationship with the wider family. And so this feels like a bit of an about turn to me uh, and it doesn't really fit with the context in which I was understanding how Charles was approaching his um, time as monarch. The other thing when I was reading about this story that sort of struck me is that we have the most expensive royal family in Europe and at a time when, you know, most people will be wondering how they're paying their bills and their mortgage, I think for many Republicans, of which allegedly there are one in four in the country, this kind of news will, I think, be fairly problematic. Will, what do you think? I think it's an excellent story, uh, which uh, and huge uh, kudos to um, the Financial Times for sticking with this one. I think it goes right to the heart of our outdated system of governance. And I think as Basha says, I think it beggars belief that at a time when there are huge cuts to social services, I mean, just just an example, my lo- my local library in South East London is being kept open by volunteers um, because of austerity cuts. And I mean, I mean, it begs belief that the 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 the, the, the king, um, or as Charles refers to him, Charles Windsor, self-identifying king, will be uh, getting such a huge pay increase. Uh, I would like to know something else about this story, though. Who is paying for the refurbishment of Buckingham Palace? I can answer that. This is coming out of that money. £185 has been spent so far. The refurbishment will cost nearly £370 altogether, and it will come out of this money. Can I just say, Giles, isn't that the problem? I've got two problems with this story. One is, we have an antiquated constitutional arrangement in this country, which involves having a monarchy. And so don't be surprised if there are some antiquated financial arrangements that go with it. And if anything, what the Treasury tried to do a decade or so ago was modernise that and put it on a slightly different footing than it had been on with the civil list. So that's my first reservation. Address that, then we'll come to the second. 
I accept in principle that if we have a Ruritanian uh, system, we can have some Ruritanian aspects to it. <laughs> but um, the so-called reform that you refer to in 2012 um, ended a system by which the monarchy received a fixed sum per year um, uh, decided by government and approved by MPs and replaced it with essentially an escalator. Let's not forget the context is a massive worldwide energy transition. The uh, increase in revenues from this part of the North Sea, because it includes the Crown Estate Scotland, um, is, is not going to be linear. It's going to be exponential. So th this is going to be increasingly embarrassing for the king. Hang on one second. For King Charles himself, there is a defence, which is I've been saying to anyone who'll listen for the better part of 40 years that we are facing an environmental and climate crisis. And if it turns out that by some strange, you know, coincidence of treasury calculation, I end up being on the positive end of that transition financially, he of all people has some defence in saying he was the one who's been pointing people towards renewables for years. Well, it's a flimsy defence. Yes, he can have the intellectual satisfaction of having been right, but that doesn't entitle him to enormous proceeds which should accrue to the Treasury. All right, here's my second reservation about this story, Giles, which is we are going to keep on doing what you and Will are doing. Will citing the underfunding of his local library and you citing edge case examples of unfairness within the tax system and the spend system of the government because we as a country keep looking at these baubles of news and missing the really big problem which is neither Labour nor the Conservatives seem to have an idea beyond we're going to take 35% tax take of GDP, we're going to limit our borrowing to 100% of GDP, we're going to be on a trajectory if we're lucky of growth of 2%. In other words, the amount of money that's available to us to invest in our futures and transform public services is so capped that we're going to have a structural problem in the country, come what may, and as a result, we're going to vent our frustration with the failure of this system by picking up on these stories that catch our attention but are not material to the outcome of the way the country works. Basha shaking her head. Basha, why don't you take that on? Uh, well, I just think, I mean... <laughs> I, th I, I think that's not the right way of looking at it because I think, well, I think if the if we're going to continue to have a monarchy and a royal family, it has to modernise and transparency and it being treated like any other public institution is a part of that. And I think it gets to a question about fairness, which is, you know, yes to all your bigger picture, which is that this is a bauble on a much bigger story. But I think if we can't get this right, if we can't get this relationship right, then that speaks to the... To some, you know, it speaks something that we could otherwise fix, which is he could either say, look, I'm not going to take this 45% pay rise or we're going to funnel it into something else. But he's not saying that. And it contradicts exactly the kind of manifesto or manifesto of sorts that he was proposing before he became king. Let's come back and consider it once we heard the other stories. With that in mind, Basha, can I come to you next? Savage mountaineering. Yes. So this is a story about really a tale of two climbers. Um, so the first is a man called Muhammad Hassan, who's a 27-year-old father of three from Pakistan and who's a high-altitude porter, who this summer was on K2, the world's second highest mountain. 
And the second person in the story is a woman called Kristen Harilla, who, along with her guide, um, a man called Tenjin Sherpa, became the fastest person to climb all of the world's 14 mountains, over 8,000 meters, in just three months. And bearing in mind that the previous record for doing that was six months, which was set by a really well-known climber who had a Netflix series made about him called Nims Perger. So it took him six months, it took Kristen Harilla three months. But the way that these two people intersect is a really sad and disturbing story about a moral dilemma, which is taking over higher altitude mountaineering at the moment, which is what do you do when somebody is dying at the top of a mountain? And it's been a story that so far has, you know, been very contradictory. Lots of people, I think, trying to protect themselves. But it is um, one that one particular reporter has done a lot of really great work on. And she said that the whole scheme of massive mountaineering could end up imploding if the issues around these two climbers aren't properly resolved. So to let you know what happened. um, So in late July, um, on K2, which is known as the Savage Mountain, there were tens and tens of climbers trying to reach the summit. And it's only a little bit shorter than Everest, but it is much, much harder to climb. And there is a bit just before the peak, which is called the bottleneck, which is, as it sounds, you have to get single file and sort of cling on to some ice to get to the top. Um, And at roughly around 2.30am on the 27th of July, there was a long line of climbers. It was dark and there had been a series of avalanches and there was news that there had been some kind of accident, which was then quite quickly, it seems, overtaken by news that Kristen Harilla had made it to the summit and that she had broken this record. So as often happens, sort of tragedy and triumph are happening kind of side by side at the top of the mountain. Um, And when this reporter um, called Angela Benavides from Explorer Web started digging into, so what happened with this accident? When did it happen? She found a lot of really conflicting statements about how this accident came to happen. So it was this Pakistani high altitude porter who sets the lines that enables these Western climbers to get to the top. So so they often go ahead and they're setting in the ropes. He had, around, around the bottleneck, been allegedly hit by an avalanche and had been hanging upside down, had been stuck and needed help to get back onto the mountain and was then, according to various sources and drone footage, apparently left there dying for around three hours as other climbers stepped over him to make it to the summit. Um, that's a sort of an amalgamation of lots of different testimonies around what happened. Some people said they tried to help him. Others said nobody was helping him. Some people said they spent hours trying to help him. Kristen Harilla's team, who were accused of stepping over him to make it to the summit, later said that um, the problem was that he didn't have the right kit, that he wasn't wearing gloves, he didn't have an oxygen mask. Other people said that his oxygen mask had actually smashed when he had been hit by the avalanche. Um, And what's interesting, particularly for me, is that Kristen Harilla's trip was organized by Seven Summit Treks, who we reported on a couple of years ago because they had organized this very controversial summit of K2 in the winter where where people had also died and they had been very much criticized for running that. And I think the reason that this story matters 
even though we don't quite know all the all the details about how this man came to die, I think fundamentally what we do know is that a Pakistani climber got into trouble and was allowed to die as many Western climbers were passing him, stepping over him to make it to the summit. And I think it pulls together many of the impending issues for high mountaineering. One is that commercialization uh, is is widening to ever more dangerous peaks as as people try and hunt for kind of world records and firsts, which are becoming fewer and fewer. Um, and so, you know, seeing a bottleneck of climbers uh, at the top of K2, where you, usually you would see them on Everest, we're used to seeing, you know, after 1996 and that book Into Thin Air, we know about the dangers of lots of people getting stuck at the top of a mountain. But people getting st- stuck at the top of K2 is a very different and much more dangerous issue. We also know that Sherpas and porters are increasingly turning away from mountaineering because the risk-reward balance is completely off. They don't earn very much money. They're often not looked after. Um, They often don't have the right kit. And so this sort of generational job, which was usually passed down from father to son, uh, the New York Times have recently been reporting that lots of Sherpa are just saying, like don't do it it's just not worth it and if you look at the statistics around a third of the deaths on Everest have been uh, local Sherpa guides and then just to top it all off climate change is making climbing mountains much much more dangerous there's more likely to be icefall and avalanches as the world warms and ice is much more unpredictable so I think all of those things together sort of points that this is a real moment that we should take notice of. Basha you use this phrase stepping over a couple of times. Does Kristen Harilla's team dispute the idea that they stepped over a person or at least the equipment of a person? I Would they have known that that person was there as they went up the ascent to K2? Well, from the photographs and the drone footage that I've seen, it's definitely clear there's a person lying in their way. That, that this is, you know, you have to go single file along this section. Um, and there's no way to get past a body there without stepping around it or stepping over it. She released a statement in which she said that this Pakistani porter, Mohammed Hassan, hadn't been properly equipped. Um, and she said that he had no down suit on when they found him. And she said that her cameraman had worked for hours to try and save him. Um, so she refutes the allegations. Um, but other climbers are very critical. There was one um, Austrian climber who said there was no rescue mission. 70 mountaineers stepped over a living guy who needed big help at this moment and they decided to keep on going to the summit. He said, there's a double standard here. If I or any other Westerner had been lying there, everything would have been done to save them. Everyone would have had to turn back to bring the injured person back down the valley. And we know from, from other rescue missions that that's true. Basha, thank you. Let's take a beat and then we'll come to Will's story, the third one, for this news meeting. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Will, 
A giant stumbles. What's that story? Well, regular listeners will remember that two weeks ago I pitched a story about a coup in Niger where members of the elite presidential guard ousted democratically elected President Mohamed Bazoum and dissolved the constitution. Uh, now I'm here today to pitch a follow-up story to that. And you won't really see this on the front pages. Um, in fact, just before we came on, I checked. There's nothing on the BBC or on the New York Times on this. Um, but it looks like West Africa one of the fastest developing fastest developing regions of the world, is on the brink of war. And now this isn't a Western or Russian invention. This is 11 countries of the ECOWAS economic region. That's an economic union between most of West Africa. They are squaring off with the new military junta in Niger. Now, put simply, West African leaders want to stop coups spreading across their region. Uh, and, and their region was, up until quite recently, making serious democratic headway. Um now, they also fear the putsch will undermine what is the, the, the front line of the war on terror, which is the Sahel region, where thousands of jihadist fighters attack locals, villages and soldiers, kind of almost Mad Max style on motorbikes across Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger. And President Bazoum uh, is reportedly being starved by the putschists who threatened to kill him if West African states invade to try and liberate him. And I think the, partly the sight of seeing one of their own imprisoned by the very men who are supposed to protect him seems to have jolted regional West African leaders into action. They don't want their own military men to get any ideas. Now, any intervention will be led by Nigeria. And uh, for those who don't know, Nigeria is to West Africa what India is to South Asia. It's an economic, political and cultural juggernaut. It makes up about half the region's population and economy, and it shares a 990 mile long border with Niger. And so, so you might be asking kind of, okay, this is far away in Africa. I mean, why does this matter to us? Well, I've long been an advocate that Europeans should pay more attention to Africa. I mean, in the past, we've had these, these two vast walls cutting Europe off from events in sub-Saharan Africa, the Mediterranean and the Grand Desert of the Sahara. But in the era of, of mass migration, those boundaries have come crashing down, even if the barriers in Western minds to meaningfully engaging with Africa have not. And, and so let's just be really clear about this. Even if there was a clinical invasion of, of Niger, one, uh, one of the poorest countries on earth with about 25 million people in it, it would risk setting a bomb off in the Sahel region, sending waves of refugees towards Europe. And the Nigerian military, which would lead any assault, doesn't do clinical. And we've seen from a failed decades-long fight against Boko Haram around the Lake Chad Basin. So, Will, let me just understand what was, you're saying, that Nigeria is looking to lead a military response to the overthrow of the democratic government in Niger and put back in place the president. Uh, exactly that. Uh, and this is a bit rubbish, but just can you just explain to me why I care about Niger? Like, just, just give me the rundown on where it is, how it interacts with the other countries in the region, how much difference it makes, whether there's a military government running it or a quote-unquote democratically elected government that's running it. What difference do those things make? Okay, so I'll break that down into three points. So first of all, you've got the the, the Niger, since 2011, has had a uh, democratic government. It's one of the democratic holdouts of a region which traditionally has been run by men in military uniform. 
That's one. Now, number two, you, you, if, you, if you're sitting in London, uh, Europe, uh, you, you care about Niger, you should be caring about Niger because of migration, which has defined European politics for the last decade. Now, Niger is the key transit route for most migrants or refugees trying to get to Europe. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people crossing Niger over the last five, ten years. And the EU has invested heavily to stop those waves of migration across Niger and set Niger up as a sort of uh, a bulwark state, both against um, against migration, but also against jihadism, which comes on to the third point, which is right now the, the, the fastest growing jihad insurgency in the world, which has effectively brought free states, Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso to their knees, is in the Sahel region. Niger was the last holdout of the Western uh, uh, counter jihadist response. This is where the French and the American based more than a thousand troops each um, to try and hold the line against these spreading jihadist insurgencies allied to al-Qaeda and Islamic State. If those three states fall, you have a huge stretch of land right underneath Europe where lawlessness prevails and jihadists can move around as they please. And I get the point you're making, Will, about the Nigerian military and not doing surgical, but shouldn't I take this as a good news story in the sense that the rest of the world is not willingly or eagerly going to step in to try and fix problems in Niger. It's a regional problem. And if the biggest regional power is willing to step in, that's good news, isn't it? That, that's promising, isn't it? I, I d- I'm not seeing this as either good or bad news. I'm seeing this as complex news. On one level, it, it could be quite. It, it could be a very, 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 very good thing that that the the regional giant, a, a problematic but democratic power, stands up for democracy in its region. But as we've seen from interventions in the past, um, whether it be Iraq or Libya, these things often have unintended consequences. Yeah, and, and obviously, I don't understand, as you can tell from all these questions, any of the neighbourhood rivalries, any of the contested interests between those two countries. Charles, what do you make of this? I wonder if the real risk here is of Nigeria uh, fragmenting or even disintegrating. In some of your reporting, Will, you've referred to it as nearly a failed state in itself. And of course, it's the biggest, richest in the neighbourhood. It's the economic engine room of West Africa. Um, it would be catastrophic if it splintered any more than it already has. I noticed one of the latest agency stories coming out of there, talks of a group of Nigerian Islamic scholars heading to Niger to negotiate with the people who led the coup. I worry, does it set the stage for a conflict back home between Islamic Hausa leaders and Christian Yoruba leaders in Nigeria itself, which has always been a dangerous fault line? It's a a really interesting question. I mean, to start off with, I mean, you, you have to imagine Nigeria as a sort of kind of as a giant and many of the other countries in the region orbiting in its kind of periphery. And um, uh, Niger, Nigeria, they, as I said, they share almost a thousand mile long border. They have a huge amount of cultural crossover between the north, uh, primarily the house regions of Nigeria and Niger. So, yes, there is. Uh, and this is where there's quite a lot of resistance right now in Nigeria to the idea of a military intervention. And this partly comes from the, that northern belt of Nigeria where they where they share huge amounts, not only of, of, of cultural links, but also of economic links, trading links. Basha, what do you think? I think that for the ways in which uh, Will has pitched it, I agree that I think it is possibly a moment of huge significance. And I think we don't yet know 
whether it's going to play out in a positive way or a negative way, um, it seems a little bit like one of those what if stories and we need to wait and see it. Last week, uh, you made the good point when I pitched a story about <laughs> a load of triathletes um, getting diarrhea from swimming in uh, English waters uh, that we don't, it's an interesting story that doesn't quite get you to the um, sort of next level. Uh, and I think that this is a really interesting update in the Niger story, but I'm not sure that it's, um, I think if and when Nigeria announced that they are going to lead a coalition to intervene, it should lead. But, but, but sorry, Bash, just to push back on that slightly, by the same kind of re- reason logicing, I mean, when Putin was gearing up to invade Ukraine, that was you know, that was that was a what if story. We didn't know he was going to invade, but it still led the news. I don't see those being a vast amount of difference here. Do you think, Will, that one of the issues here is we just don't treat African stories with the same seriousness that we treat other stories? I think we at Tortoise do uh, a very good job at trying to put give Africa the attention it deserves. But I think as a wider um, culture point, I think that's fairly obvious. I mean, there was there was jokes among uh, UK foreign correspondents in Africa, which was basically like, all they want is basically white tourists in trouble or lions um, uh, uh, and the odd coup story. So so there is a, there is a sort of um, a reluctance to take Africa seriously. And that's partly because it has been so far removed from European life for so many years in the sense that there have been these two great barriers. But now those barriers have fallen down, as we're seeing hundreds of people almost seemingly every week are drowning in the Mediterranean trying to get to Europe. Well, thank you. Well, listen, why don't we, on that basis, uh, have a go at each making call on what story we'd choose of these three. As you know, you can't choose your own. So, Will, you go first. What story would you choose of the three, assuming you could, don't go with Niger? I thought Basha's story was had phenomenal human interest, and it really cut to the core of a lot of issues I didn't hear about. However, I'd, I'd probably go for Giles's because I really just feel it, it, it reveals something quite disconcerting about our society and where we are. Basha? I think I would also go for Giles's. Um, I think the Niger story is is interesting and important, but I don't think, for me, it's a leading story at this moment. Um, and I think that if you care about fairness and you care about British institutions, um, I think the fact that, you know, King Charles's uh, I don't even know what to call it. It's not his salary. It's his income, his cash. I don't know. His wealth. <laughs> that it's about to increase uh, at a time when uh, I think we should perhaps rethink how much is going to that family. Uh, I think that's important and we should pay attention to it. Charles, what do you think? Death on K2 every time wins it for me. This isn't just about mountaineering. This is human nature red in tooth and claw. Well, listen, I'll have a go. This is one of those, I can't remember where a news meeting like this, where you could quite so easily have any of the three lead, because I think the three of them do entirely different things. One story is incredibly interesting, K2. One story is hugely consequential, Nigeria and Niger. And one story is really revealing, um, the King Charles story. And newsrooms, I think, contest those things, interesting, consequential and revealing all the time. So it's a personal choice. I would probably go uh, K2 Niger Charles for this reason. Um, Charles, I think, is a really revealing story. I do think that the questions about future finances of the royals and the issues that underline the institution and also um, the issues around fairness in society mean that these things are going to get amplified. But my experience of 
raw stories and raw finances stories is that people are quite entrenched in the way in which they think about royalty in the UK. And to some people, these stories feel like a nuisance. And to others, they feel like exhibit A of the problem. And it's very hard to make those things move. I actually take Will's point on the fact that, yes, this is an update. Yes, this is a staging post in a bigger story that's been running for several weeks now. But I buy your point that Nigeria preparing a military action into its neighbor with all the risks associated and all that we don't understand about that is significant. And we need to know and need to know that's coming. But the reason I would choose uh, Mohammed Hassan and the death of a high-altitude porter on K2 is that it doesn't matter whether you're into mountaineering or not, whether you never leave sea level, the whole culture of mountaineering and the competition that uh, sits behind it and the quest for success and the reputation that comes with it and all the prices that people pay for that speak to us everywhere. So for that reason, my running order, K2, Niger, Charles. Basha, thank you. Thank Charles, you. thank you. Will, thank you're you welcome. very much. If you think none of those stories should have made the news, or certainly we didn't get the right choice about what led, then do just get in touch with us. You can email newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Really would love to hear from you. Most of all, thank you for listening. We're going to be back at the end of the week um, with a discussion about the stories that... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We think mattered most and try and figure out what then, at the end of this week, should lead the news. Hope you have a very good week. Thanks for listening. Tortoise.